Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. We're coming to you live over on the YouTube channel. For the first time, I hit that live broadcast button. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've got Zach Milner here to talk a little bit about the Thompson Twins and two of the trickier evals in this entire draft class, just in terms of what we're seeing on OTE and tape. Zach and I are going to break down a couple clips that we have pulled up from, from both Amen and Asor Thompson and just kind of go through things. But we are a week away from the draft here. Like, this is sneaking up on me. I don't know if you feel the same way, Zach, but, like, holy shit, we're here. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I feel like it took a while to get to the point of, like, the draft actually being here, but the last two or three weeks have gone by so quickly. I'm like, oh, wow, we're actually just a week out now. Yeah, it, it, it happened really damn quickly. So, uh, Zach, we're glad to have you back here for another episode on the podcast. And, you, you know, loved our conversation earlier about defense and trying to figure out, you know, how do you evaluate and value health defense? I think that there might be some aspects of that conversation that come back up here tonight. But before we get started, I always got to ask, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Everything's good. I can't complain. Uh Unfortunately, the finals are over now, so we just have a little bit of dead time of, of, of NBA basketball. I've been watching some more WNBA this year compared to how I have in the past, so I'm happy to get into that a little bit more. But I'm ready for, for the draft and for Summer League and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, not much has changed. It's basketball still every day. How are you doing? I'm the same way. I'm actually getting here, and, and I know we'd said we'd go live a little bit earlier than this, but uh, had a couple games tonight down at DMV Live, taking my high school team down there, so you know, kind of sprinting from one part of the basketball life to the other here and, and actually breaking down some tape. So let's dive straight into it here and and really kind of set the table for this. This is the third tape watch along of, of two different prospects that I've done here on the podcast. And look, the Amenasaur Thompson debate is one that's fascinating because over the last couple of weeks, it seems like there's been a little bit more of a groundswell, at least in terms of rumblings online that there's a divide between who teams actually prefer of these two. Um, I've been pretty clear all along on my end that I, I believe Amen Thompson is going to be a superior prospect and player. And we can probably touch on that as we dive into some of the clips. Hopefully this film session illustrates the thoughts that we have on both, but uh, it's a, a fascinating debate. And, and I don't know if you have an area where you weigh in on, or that's something that you want to lead off with Zach, but wh where are you at? kind of contextually with these two in comparison or in terms of the entire class? Yeah. So I, I prefer a man to a star as well. Um, I think they're both really, really good prospects, but I think it's a pretty easy decision for me if I'm deciding between the two um, for a man. I, I think with him, I'm pretty comfortable saying top four, probably number three for me. Um, just we'll go more into him, but just everything that he can bring to the table is very, very intriguing. And I actually, so one thing I want to bring up to you is so recently I've been thinking of like thinking of Andrew Wiggins, Aaron Gordon, and seeing where they were picked very high in their draft class, right? Yeah. Looking at it from like, looking back at it, maybe didn't live up to the hype that they had coming into the NBA, um, just from an expectation standpoint, but they both were able to adjust how they played, change the role, both very, very athletic players um, who were able to buy more into the defensive end and have become really good like wing defenders and stoppers for their teams and have both become very important players on championship teams to where I've, I've sort of viewed that as something where I'm very intrigued with this really 
outlier athletes. And even if the immense stuff, like on the offensive concerns that we'll touch on, don't work out, if he can buy into the defense side of things, I actually still can see him having an impact that way as well. So I'm pretty high on his floor. Um, they are all very different prospects. I know I Andrew Wiggins was a much better offensive prospect than um, just the scoring. Like I just think the 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 athleticism for him is so outlier that there are different paths to success. Yeah, it's again, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. And and look, I don't think we can have it without really mentioning like how unique the evaluation is for the overtime elite program. This is year two of being able to watch game tape on a lot of these guys. And it's somewhat disorganized at times on the floor. It can be somewhat chaotic. There's strobe lights and, you know, things shooting up behind the baseline and in the middle of the game <laughs> action. Like it's, it's a fun experience, no doubt about it. And there is a lot of talent on the floor, but it also feels like a lot of non optimal spacing a lot of how do I contextualize what these guys are able to do on the floor next to this level of talent, just because it is kind of a, its own level of basketball. What, what has this experience been like for you in just trying to evaluate and contextualize what OTE brings to the table? Yeah, I think we're all learning more and more just the more we watch. And even going back to ignite, we're still pretty early in the ignite stuff as well. We have a couple more years of that, but we haven't really had that much time, especially with overtime, to look back and learn from mistakes or hits and misses as well. So that's going to be something that we continue to learn over the years. Um, but when comparing uh, overtime to G League to other things like college and international, there's definitely a big difference. There's not as much half-court offense as there is in college basketball um, or international Maybe it's a little bit more similar to like an AAU style, maybe a little bit G League style. I, I would say it compares to those two more than it does to a college or international, um, just because just, there's so much more transition stuff and there's not as much of a system, I feel like, in overtime. Um, but yeah, just trying to differentiate all different settings is, is tough. But I think with how much you watch basketball and how much we watch basketball over time, regardless of setting, and, and we'll talk about age as well, you can still see how special a player is or what they can do, even if it is sometimes against younger players or in something that's not a good system. It's just there's still skills that you can see regardless of, of those factors. Yeah, and, and I feel really comfortable, or I should say more comfortable in watching this film because of how much AAU basketball I watch and trying to watch a little bit more for the natural tools, the athleticism, the things that pop uh, on, on some of those courts. Like you get used to doing that as a college coach a number of years or just, you know, thankfully having synergy to be able to dial up those games whenever we'd like. But look, let's do what we all are here for. Right. Let's dive into some of the film and talk about these guys individually. We're going to do four sets of clips on each guy. I know that's that's a lot. So this is going to be a film heavy episode here. Four sets of clips. We're going to talk about the athleticism. We're going to talk about the passing feel and the playmaking. We're going to talk about those jump shots, which may be somewhat questionable. And we're going to talk about the defense, how they tie some of those athletic tools together. And we're going to start with our preferred prospect because you and I are both in alignment. Amen Thompson, a little bit higher above. Zach, start us off here. What are your initial summaries or takeaways of Amen Thompson as a prospect? I think first and foremost, just a ridiculous athlete, outlier athlete. I've There's been talk about some people saying the best athlete they've ever evaluated. I don't want to go that far and say it, but I do think he's up there. It is 
just in, insane how athletic he is. Vertically explosive on the ground. He's very quick. His change of pace, change of direction. Everything is just so, so impressive with him. He pretty much gets into the paint at will, puts pressure on the defense, makes them, draws them in, which opens up dump offs or kickouts, or he gets to the room whenever he wants as well. So that's the first thing that comes up to mind with him. Um, going a little bit deeper into his game, though, I do have some questions about the shot um, and the finishing. I think you might be a little bit higher on the finishing than I am, which we'll discuss. Um, have some questions there. Passing. I've seen people call him an elite passer. I'm personally not there right now. I think he is really awesome passer, really fun, has great manipulation with, with ball fakes and using his eyes to look defensive off and everything. But I do think he misses a few too many reads for me to call him an elite passer right now. Definitely think he can get there. Um, and then, yeah, the defenses will be a main talking point for us today as well. Um, I like the flashes, but I think the the overtime setting um, can lead to bad habits forming. And I'm very curious to know if they'll be able to be fixed or not. Um, but the flashes are good, just very, very inconsistent there. I think that's a, a good summary and it leaves some interesting points for us to try to bring up here. So let's just start with the athleticism and, and we'll show mostly half court clips here because I think the transition stuff is really evident whenever you watch OTE play, but this is it for me right here. And I'm going to rewind this clip when we're done. It really, the athleticism with a is about how he goes from a slow walk up or eyeing up his man to completely bursting and going past him. And it's worth noting, these are good athletes who are defending him. These are, are not just you know poor guys that can't keep anybody in front. And he is blowing past them really, really quickly from a standstill. And then he has the finishing craft. We saw the reverse on the last clip. Here's an inside hand lefty layup off the glass, which is really, really tricky. Getting downhill, coming off of ball screens. I'm going to show this clip again here just looking at the way that he spins the ball off the glass, really underrated type of finish to accelerate as fast as he does here and then have the ability to high scoop that one with English off the glass. I think it does show a lot of finishing touch that he brings to the table. The burst on his dribble moves is what's really captivating though. He's not just a freak athlete. He knows how to manipulate defenders with his bounce. Here's the left to right cross. Yeah, one thing, I want to add, one thing I want to add also is it's the handles that are pretty solid as well and the footwork, like you said, to set up the defender. All of that combined with the burst, with the change of direction, with the change of pace, that's what makes him so difficult. Like having the combination of all of them. Sure, you can get to the basket a lot just from having the burst, but having all of that together just makes it so much more for so much more difficult for a defense to actually know what you're going to do or because they can't even really guess because if you can counter that, it's just, okay, what are you going to do next? So the combination is just awesome. And we talk a lot with, with the guards that I coach about playing at different levels, right? You've got to not just stay at different speeds, but you've got to come out of your stance. You've got to get lower and be able to blow past people. And that's what I see on this left to right crosses. He's high in his stance. And then all of a sudden he drops his hips and his shoulders gets low and that is an unbelievable rim attack. So I keep calling him N. Thompson just this elite paint touch guy. And, and as we see some of these clips continue to play, his ability to be creative is something that's underrated. Like he loves to get back to his right hand. That's where his preferred finishing comes from. That's where he has most of his touch around the rim. But this is a really creative like inside out dribble 
into a, a pro hop, essentially strong two foot finisher. He's bursty off one and he's bursty off two. There's that same move again, just ridiculous ground so coverage. It's so disgusting. So nasty. It's disgusting. And then but, again, splitting the lane, a little bit of deceleration. Like it's not just these dunks and these highlight real plays. It's the ability to read where this defender is at and kind of change your speed and your, your cadence of movement in a way that allows him to be difficult to guard. Right. And I agree. I think the best way you put it is the paint touch guy, but um, what I would say is a very, very crafty finisher. I think he has so much craft to his finishing and that's what I do like about the finishing side of things. I do think with him, the reason the numbers aren't that great around the rim is because he forces up a bunch of tough shots where there's two or three defenders there. And that comes into some decision-making where there are dump offs or there are kickouts available, which is why I'm saying like, I'm not at the, he's a currently elite pass. He's a currently passer right now, but I can see him getting there. Um, In terms of the touch though, I think it's pretty inconsistent. Uh, There are like that left hand inside hand finish was very, very nice. We've seen some up and unders, he can hang in the air and absorb contact and finish through contact as well, even if they are tough. Um, but I do think he misses a, a few too many shots around the rim that, you th- rim that you think he can make as well, which is why I'm not going to say I think he has great or elite touch at the moment. But I am, uh, I'm not too worried about the finishing in terms of what I project at the next level, even if it isn't going to be that efficient at the next level with how often he can get there, if he can add some uh, foul drawing craft as well. It's great. And I remember going back to John Moran, Murray State, he had some similar questions with finishing yeah. as well. I would say I, I was a little bit more optimistic with his finishing, I think, than I am here. But he definitely had some finishing questions. He's become better. He, he's also improved his intermediate game a good amount. I think that's something that we can work on here. But, yeah, I just wanted to, to touch on that with his finishing. Yeah, if there's one complaint I have, it's that he over-Englishes sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm going to trademark that after tonight. But, like, he just <laughs> tries to use spin way too much around the basket. I think he favors his right hand as opposed to his left. We know he can finish with his left, but he likes to use his right on the opposite side whenever possible. And he does not have that in-between game yet. You're, you're absolutely right. Like, he tends to be a lot more complete burst to the rim and then make that play at, at the hoop. But as we talked about, the athleticism is what leads to him being essentially a walking paint touch. And I always believe that first and foremost, if you're going to be a primary creator, you need to force ways to make the defense collapse to you. And his athleticism is what brings that out first and foremost. The next decision to make, I always call it a rim decision. You need to decide whether you're going to score it once you collapse that defense and are having a drive to the basket, or if you're going to be able to kick it out to somebody else. And that's where I want to dive into the passing of a Thompson right now, because I think while there are some areas where he misses some open guys, by and large, what he does is be able to get into the lane and then make a pretty good decision while going at ridiculous speed. So here we see helping uphill from the opposing big man on the, I believe that's the young dreamers right there and a really good shovel pass dump off. He does miss some of those, but I think it's worth noting he is capable of making them as a live dribble passer. Zach, you'd mentioned the eyes earlier, right? The ability yeah. to get into the lane and look somebody off. Look where his eyes are right now. You've got four players on the cold hearts that have really 
had to collapse on the lane. That's the thing with his athleticism is it forces so many other people to collapse and be in help that pairing that with proactive reads and really good vision as a passer is going to just set everybody else for an easy role. And, and, you know, the, they do a good job here, the, the Reapers of, of actually spacing the floor. You see, there's the kick out to a wide open shot, but just his overall manipulation and timing at full speed is really tough. And going back to that is this is where improving the finishing and the intermediate game will become so important because if he is going to be a threat in those areas, these defenses are going to have to pay more attention to him when he gets there. And if, if he doesn't, then you can see defenses be like, okay, we're actually going to let you take that floater. We're going to let you take that mid-range shot. We're not going to help off our shooters and you have to punish us that way. Or we know you're going to look to pass or you're not going to finish well. We're going to make you do that. So making sure he is able to finish or hit that mid-range stuff. We'll just make the the passing that much easier. And he doesn't need to rely on his scoring gravity to make passes because he does see a lot of great passes, but it does make things so much easier. Yeah, it totally does. And again, I, I love the ability to kind of whip those passes out at full speed. That's an underrated part of this. You'll see what he does. Get into the lane, collapse the defense, make a kick out. It's it's kind of time and time again. That was his role this year. If he got separation off of a ball screen or even without one, he gets into the lane, makes a really strong decision with a quick kick, kick out. He is a firm, crisp passer. He puts a lot of zip on that thing. He's six foot seven, which is going to allow him to see and throw passes over the top of defenses. And this is what I love from him. The live dribble skips with his right hand. When he drives to his right, that vision, that size allows him to throw those over the top of the defense. And that's an unbelievable hook pass right there. This is a common type of action that a lot of teams will see in the NBA here with that side ball screen. You'll see the shake action. So shooter rises out of the corner exactly while that roll happens. His read right now is on the tagger who is standing just above that OTE logo if he's on the inside of the roll man, it's a throwback to a shot. If he's on the outside or fails to tag that, it's going to be able to hit the roll. And really quick decision on his part to be able to throw that one-handed live dribble hook pass. And like you mentioned with his size, having that size and the ability to see over defenders and make passes over defenders is such a valuable skill to have that these other... I mean, we are seeing a lot more bigger ball handlers in the NBA now to where it is becoming more common but you have some of the smaller guards can't make some of these passes, even if they have better vision, just because they can't pass over the defense like that. So it's just a valuable skill to have that not everyone's able to bring to the table. Yep. And the last thing I wanted to denote here, you looked at the eyes earlier. Look where his eyes are at this point. He's trained on the opposite corner to keep that man at home a little bit so he can throw this hook pass over the top and end up getting a dunk. It prevents a rotation because of how manipulative he is with his eyes. And we'll see that as a theme here as we keep rolling through some of the clips, but the pace on some of these passes is really ridiculous. Like one hand accurate zips with his right. If you can find ways to get him downhill at the point of attack, it's going to be really hard to stop. And I loved this pass that he was able to throw right here for two reasons. One is the kind of hang dribble that he uses coming off the ball screen. The second is the vision to see a cutter uh, he, really underrated. So yeah, and, and it's underrated skill to try to evaluate because when it's a stationary shooter, you know where he is before you go into your drive. To have to track him while you are moving is a really difficult thing to do. And again, one we'll thing finish I'm, on the eyes. 
Go ahead. One thing I want to ask you though is where where do you stand on his accuracy of his passes? I I'm pretty impressed for, with it for the most part, but I want to know what you think there because being able to hit shooters in the pocket saves so much time, especially when you have the NBA athletes with their length closing out on you, getting a hand up. If you're going to make them waste a half a second because you can't hit them in the shooting pocket, that, that that's valuable uh, time that you're wasting. So uh, where do you stand on the accuracy of his passes? Very good, not great. Um, there are a couple that are off the mark at times. And if you push him to his left, I think that's where I have the most questions about being able to throw those as accurately. Yeah, I would love to see him uh, incorporate those left-handed hook skip passes more often and, and more consistently. Uh, yep. It is it is a tough one. You don't see many uh, players feel that comfortable doing it with both hands with that kind of velocity behind the pass as well. Only very few in the league can do that. But yep. uh, if he can add that, that would be uh, very big for him. That would be brutal. And, uh, and again, we want to finish on the eyes and that manipulation. I think that's the next level part of what a lot of passers do. These no looks or, or understanding where the rotation is going to come from and using his eyes to look that player away. His ability to hang in the air because of how good of an athlete he is, is just such a huge part of why those plays and passes really work. A lot of guys, and this is, you know, shout out to a good friend of the podcast, Caitlin Cooper, right? Like jump passing is fun and jump passing can be good when you have the ability to quickly make decisions and when you are kind of athletic enough to hang in the rim and extend that time to read the defense. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this last play here, and I know we can't necessarily see, uh, maybe you can on your end of the video stream here, Time and score, five seconds left here in the half for overtime elite. And the result of his athleticism, his pace pushing tempo here, just dribbles around guys in transition, a no-look flyer to the corner. His team ends up getting a three and uh, the great graffiti before they go to halftime because OTE is a wild and fun experience. But I I love the passing because I think it complements his athleticism so well. He utilizes one to really unlock the other. I'm not worried about the finishing while I I could nitpick some of the parts of lack of a left hand at times and over Englishing TM. Uh, I do think that he's just so athletic that in a well-spaced NBA system, these are going to become actually somewhat easier reads for him. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And we saw in those clips where there was four guys pretty much, looking at him in the paint pretty much. And we said that if he has better shooters around him um, or he improves the intermediate game, which I don't even think he necessarily has to improve the intermediate game for it to be easier to get to the rim and finish. But once again, you want to do that because it makes everything else easier. Um, just his ability to get into the paint is just so, so valuable. You can't, we, I know we said it a lot, but you just can't overstate it. It just makes everything easy on the offense. Yeah. So I have this theory about basketball that I'm continuing to develop here. And and it is kind of a guiding principle for how I do a lot of evaluation. First step, collapse the defense, get a, get a paint touch, find a way to force multiple people to guard you. Second step, make the right rim decision or paint decision. Once you get there, finish, kick out, who am I throwing it to? Can I throw it there accurately, et cetera. The third aspect of basketball and winning basketball is making the right decision on the catch. And I think we have established that Amen Thompson is a good decision maker, but if no one guards you out on the perimeter, when you catch someone else's 
pass out to you, it really handicaps a lot of the decisions that you can make. So that's where we're going to talk a little bit about that dreaded shooting in shooting form right now that we kind of have to dive into with Amen Thompson. Again, number one on the court here. You'll see him standing in the bottom corner. And it just feels flat immediately kind of coming off of his hand. I don't know if you see anything with the the actual technique and shooting form that you want to talk to talk through as it's, we're seeing these clips. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit inconsistent. Um, if you watch all of them, sometimes he has that right hand move out right on the follow-through. Sometimes the left guide hand comes off a little earlier or it's on the far side of the ball. So I think this the, sh- the shooting mechanics are inconsistent um, as a whole, and that could be a reason why the shot isn't that great. Um, but going back to what you said is if you can't really, like if the defenses are not going to close out on you, not only are you making it tough, but you're also killing an advantage that your teammate got for the offense as well, pretty much. Like we're talking about how he's able to create advantages by uh, collapsing the defense and kick it out. If he's kicking it out to like, let's say it was himself, it's not that much of a threat if right. no one's going to close out on you and you're not going to make a shot or you're not going to make the right decision. Now for him, with his athleticism, he is still able to occasionally attack like uh, people when they're sagging so far off of him because it's, it's just that's how crazy of an athlete he is. But yeah, the the, the shooting and the decision making off the catch is is definitely an important part of the game still. Yeah, and look, you talked about not closing out to him. Like we'll see in this string of clips right here when he catches the ball on the perimeter, ready to catch and shoot. A lot of teams just don't really close out to him, and. Again, this is even more harmful than not closing out is backing up once he catches it. And part of that is respect because of the athlete he is, but it's complete disrespect to the shooter that he's become. I mean, literally backing up and standing eight feet away, daring him to shoot. He's got to be able to find some sort of a counter for that because standing all the way back, backing up or not even bothering to close all the way out is not a formula for winning basketball when someone else creates that open look look and opportunity for you. So again, as we kind of wrap through some of these clips, you'll notice how many different people don't close out. And then the same thing with the pull-up mechanics. They're not there right now. He's not a threat when teams go underneath ball screens to really pull from three. And I think that that could have, at least in a postseason series, some harmful effect for him when he's trying to be a creator a little bit more. Doesn't have... Again, this self-creation step-back ability in a lot of different ways. I don't love the hip turns in a lot of his jump shots in the mid-range. We talked a little bit earlier, he loves to go to his right hand as a driver. But you'll notice like, there's some fluidity in how he turns his hips, but it feels rather stiff at times too. Like That follow-through and kick-through with his right leg as he's coming around into his shot it just doesn't quite feel loose or fluid enough. So where are you at overall in the shot, man? I'm pretty skeptical. Um, Unfortunately, I'm I'm on the skeptical side with him. I will say though, like I sort of mentioned earlier, I do think his athleticism is that great to where I do see path success for him without figuring out the shot. I do think um, the shot or the intermediate game, or the finishing, some of that needs to improve 100%. But I do think that he might just be one of those outlier athletes that can make it work. And I've actually, I've always been someone who's been anti-guys who can't space the floor, who can't shoot because of, like you mentioned, 
in the postseason, it makes it like that's when teams are their whole game plan is to make it as tough as for you as possible. And they have a whole series to figure out and experiment with different kinds of things. And you have to be able to punish different things. And one thing when I look at ball handlers is are they able to punish different kinds of pick and roll coverages like you mentioned? And I do think he has been able to find some success when they go under still, but it's definitely not the most threatening compared to other things. So that's what teams will do against him. Um, So it's interesting. Like I said, on the skeptical side there, unfortunately, but I still think he's a very good prospect. And with him, unlike other shooters, is he's probably going to be on the ball more often than off the ball to where the spacing won't hurt him as much as it does as, let's say, a Jordan Walsh or Andre Jackson or one of those guys. He's definitely has a better chance of overcoming um, that flaw in the game compared to the guys who are playing off the ball more often. Yeah, totally agree. And that's where the understanding of his athleticism and his playmaking is so important. Like we go through that stuff first because I tend to agree with you. Like the shot might not be what ends up sinking him. Uh, I think he can still make it as a prospect and as a player in the NBA, it can still handcuff him in a lot of ways though. So, you know, when we're looking at all of these clips and watching all these OTE games, the context is really, really important. Like he might just be so good of an athlete that he's going to still produce as a, a guy who gets into the lane and makes positive plays for his team. So Zach, let's move to the la- the other side of the ball and the last set of clips that we'll watch here on Amen Thompson and talk a little bit more about the defense. I'm actually fairly skeptical. I think that it's it's going to be a long road for him at the NBA level in terms of how he gets up to, to par. So a couple really positive clips when he is engaged and move his feet again, six, seven with like a six, nine, six, 10 wingspan elite vertical burst. He can lock guys down, but screen navigation for him hasn't always kind of been his forte in different regards. I think he comes out of his stance really easily and is very upright at the point of attack. Just kind of watch his general form as we're going through a lot of these clips He tends to stand straight up, and as a result of that, it's hard for him to get that leg whip. It's hard for him to stay low around contact on screens. He gets bumped off of those spots, and as a result, we end up getting a drive to the basket. And at the NBA level, really good guards and ball handlers are going to be able to manipulate that from him. We see two instances here where it results in a score, but – if he's going to be this upright trying to chase around screens, I think that he may have some issues at the point of attack. Yeah, I agree. Um, I sometimes, when I realize a lot of these uh, younger, I mean, he's not a young prospect, but some of these guys who haven't played um, in the system for that long, who haven't been taught that long, like multi-year college guys or in the NBA, I do see a lot of their problems are the technique on the perimeter and that is something that i think is at least somewhat fixable relative to someone who just can't move his feet with him we have seen several times where he is still really quick moving his feet when he wants to um so if he can fix the technique a little bit more i am a little bit optimistic on that side um but one thing i want to ask you though did you see any difference in his approach whether it's on or off the ball when you're talking about the Sierra Canyon game or the Corona Centennial game or in the playoffs compared to how it was throughout the season. Cause I actually thought he was a little bit more locked in at those times, um, which 
you can look at it both ways, positive and negative. Like, why is he not trying throughout the regular season? But also these are the games where you know everyone's watching the most of. Um, and he is showing more that he can do when he wasn't showing that throughout the whole season. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought. I may address that when we get through the clips here um, because okay. I, I want to see if there's – I can't remember if I had one or two in here that might address some of that stuff. So hang on to that one for a second. This is a bad habit that I, I believe that a man has. Uh, he loves to, when he knows that he's beat because he can overpressure sometimes, he uses his athleticism as his ability to just really get into the basketball. As soon as someone gets around him, he loves to try to reach from behind. I, I don't love that as a coach. That's a habit that really irks me because of what it leads to for everybody else. And now this is the other stuff, the off ball. As we mentioned, he likes to use his athletic tools. He likes to gamble a little bit on ball. He likes to pressure. I think he likes to gamble for steals off ball. So while you talk about his engagement level in some of those games like Sierra Canyon or in the playoffs, I think he was a little bit more in tune when he was guarding the basketball of, okay, I need to be in a stance. I need to be ready for this, but I didn't see that same resolve off ball. I think he still has a lot of habits where he stands up and watches. So just watch him on this possession following this point here he kind of struggles to recover to know exactly where to go at different times. And now again, standing up watching that is just a, a glaring back cut from his man on the wing stands yeah, here and just, watches the basketball. It's, it's, there's no excuse. It can't happen. Cannot happen. And again, you'll see him be in tune on the basketball in a lot of these clips where he's starting out of possession. And then as soon as he gets off ball, I mean, what, where is he going on that hesitation out there? Does he think his man is going to stand at half court for the entire possession? And it's, it's a challenge because some of the habits that he has are overhelping trying to gamble for steals. And this is one of them right here. I always say you get your hand caught in the cookie jar. If you are one pass away and you're guarding a shooter, this is more bluff and recover territory than it is actually go and try to dig down and get a steal. And if you bluff and recover nine times out of 10, that 10th time, the driver won't expect you to come all of the way. That's when you end up getting the steal. But you'll see him guarding the corner. As this drive comes, he's standing way too far away from his man. He is in this gap just for the purpose of trying to get a steal. You see him dig and swipe at it late to recover on the, the smart relocation from the shooter, like really good off ball NBA players are going to torch him if he doesn't change those habits. Yeah. He makes it very obvious there that he has no intention of going back to the corner. It's a very easy kick out. Um, like you said, if it's a good shooter, you can't do that. If it's a bad shooter, you can have a little bit more, but they still like, you have to make sure you're in a position where they can't baseline cut also. Um, right. So you have to be able to recover there as well. Um, yep. With him. He uh, is definitely someone who hunts those kind of steals. Um, but that's where I think the defensive talk with, with overtime is, is very interesting. And I, I think that's might just be a whole thing with the setting where people try to do that. And there's not a great system in, involved and all that kind of stuff to where these are the bad habits that are forming. We mentioned it earlier. We're going to talk about it more once the clips are done, but are they going to be able to be fixed or are they too deep or how long will it take to fix these habits that have been formed over the last couple of years? And another part of that conversation, which is really important, particularly for a men is that this was an overtime elite level and program that lived in transition. 
And he was such a dominating athlete at this level that it, it, you almost can justify him trying to gamble for some of these steals at times, because if he's successful, it's an automatic two points for his team. Like he's so damn good in the open floor at scoring or creating for others that you have to give him a little bit longer of a leash. Like you don't want to turn him into this rotational, never make a risk, risky play type of guy, but you need to find the counterbalance. And right now it's way too far in the other direction. Just hard to know if that's him, if that's overtime elite or how much you can really tamper that down. Yeah. And you and I on our last podcast where we talked about bigs and defense, we talked about how much is too much, right? Yes. How much is too much mistake? Because everyone is going to make a mistake. You're going to get backdoored here and there. It, it does happen. How much is too much? And he, like you said, is on too far past the spectrum and he has to reel it back a little bit. Um, that's definitely not something that will be good year one it will definitely take a year or two maybe a little bit longer to reel it back but i do want to see some improvements in year one i want to see improvements in year two even if it's not to where we want it to be overall small improvements are perfectly fine i uh, just continue to improve that year after year and hopefully it gets to where we want it to be in terms of finding that balance like you said of one to gamble one not to gamble because he is such a good transition player those two free points are very very intriguing um you just got to be able to, if you are going to gamble, make sure you're actually good at recovering as well. If you don't get the steal, make sure you're able to recover and your defense is able to make up for you. And then you figure out how to defend this scramble situation. Yep. Yep. And he's got to put all of those pieces together a little bit better. So let's just put a bow on this real neatly here real quickly for the amend Thompson side of things. I think we both seem to agree. He is a primary playmaker, right? a guy that an NBA offense should put the ball in his hands a little bit more and give him a lot of rain to create out of ball screens or find ways to get into the lane. Do you see that as being his optimal usage? Yeah. I always will like lean on the pessimistic side and saying that he will be sure. a number one playmaker because it's extremely hard to do, mm -hmm. um, especially with the shooting and the finishing intermediate game stuff that we've mm -hmm. talked about. But I do think that outcome with him, like when we're talking about using a top pick on someone who can be that kind of guy, it's more realistic with him than it is with most other guys in the yeah. class. And that is very, very valuable. And like I mentioned earlier, where if some of this stuff doesn't come around, I still think there is a, a nice opportunity for him to be a role player, rotation player, and even more like a, a good starter, even off the ball, if he can figure out some other things. So that's why I am okay with taking him with a top four pick, maybe even number three. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think you want to put him in that number one playmaking kind of role and, and let him uh, work things out that way. It's always tough to bet on someone to be that kind of guy. But if, if you were to bet on someone, he, he is someone that is worth taking the chance on. Yeah. And look, we talked about the jump shot and how it's important, but it's not crucial for him to live in that role. We talked about the defense where the tools, the athleticism, the length is all there, but he's got to become a little bit more disciplined, both on ball and off ball in order to harness those. And like you said, if he's able to do that, that could raise his floor in a substantial way where now he can stay on as an athletic mismatch defender who just helps his team as a slasher and with more connective passing if the primary stuff is able to be uh, thwarted by different types of defensive types. So you and I both have him top four and feel pretty good about him. Yeah. And to be clear, if he does become like, if the playmaking stuff doesn't work out and he does change into this like floor kind of, role that we're talking about 
yeah, that probably wouldn't return the top four value that you're hoping for. Like that would still be an underwhelming pick, sure. But if that is still an opportunity, that is still a realistic outcome, um, while having that kind of uptick that he does bring, that is an intriguing player. It's 100% a, a good pick. 100% agree with you. So let's let's turn the page then to his twin brother, Asar Thompson. And we'll do the same exact format of diving into the tape here, but really want to frame this in two different ways, Zach. And if, if you want to take us through this, would love for you to start this off. What is your take and kind of summary of him as a prospect? And where are real initially the major difference points between him and a men that caused there to be a difference between the two on your board? Right. So Asar is a good athlete, above average athlete, just not doesn't have the burst that a man does. And yeah. it's, it's really unfair to compare him to a man in that, in that aspect, because like we talked about, it's just outlier there. Um, but he is a good athlete. Still, it's not as bursty. I think he has really good handles. He has more control of his handles. I think with the men, he sometimes is going too fast to where he's losing it. Um, so I like as far as handles there. Um, more consistent with the defense as well, I think. And he has better flashes on that end. Um, shooting, I would say, would favor here than I would with the men. Still a little bit uh, skeptical, but I'm cautiously like I'm more cautiously optimistic here than I am. Um, but with him, it is going to be harder for him to succeed without a shot yeah. um, if he doesn't figure that part out. So it, it's interesting. Um, but those are like the, the initial differences and in how they compare. But yeah. I think that that last point is one I've been trying to hammer home about the, the big difference between them for a long period of time. Both are shaky shooters. Asar maybe a little bit further along right now, but he needs the shot a lot more than a man does because his physical tools aren't quite there. So let's look at some of the athletics stuff from him and, and dive into the tape. Like you'll see still a very above average athlete and a guy who can get into the lane and make plays, but not quite as quick twitchy. Like, that is a pretty good drive. Rewind that for a second also, by the way, please. I will. Perfect. Sorry to interrupt you there. I just want to talk about what we talked about with him. Like, look at the footwork that he uses to set up this drive as well. Like, he is stuttering his feet, getting that defender, not really sure when he's going to go. And that's when he explodes to the basket. Once again, not as bursty, but it does help him get past his man and get for that up and under finish on the other side of the rim. Yep. And, you know, as, as we keep watching some of these clips here, like, you'll see this is – kind of the difference between the two is for a man, once he gets to this point, he's such a good athlete that he's going to find a way to dunk this, to hang in the air through contact and be able to finish, get two free throws. Like there's a little bit polish that a man needs to add in order to do this every time. But I think with a sore, it's just not quite as bursty there where guys can make plays coming from the, the weak side. Now I want to get your, your thoughts on some of this stuff because it's what I think of is the main difference between the two as ball handlers and processors. Asar is much more of a guy who picks up his dribble outside of the lane and either tries to make proactive passes or is it because he just can't quite get that same level of separation off the bounce? Like he tends to play with his food a little bit and pick up his dribble there outside of 15 feet. And we see the results of that with leading him into pull-up jumpers or just getting a little bit stranded in that area where his athleticism just leaves him to, to not quite get all the way past his man, end up in this mid-range area where he has to take some more difficult ones. And without really strong shooting touch, the numbers tend to 
to fall down a little bit more. I think Asar is somewhere around like 37, 38% as a scorer in the half court in general. That's all field goal attempts in the half court. And that's a really, really low mark. And part of the reason for that, I believe, is because he, he tends to not be as we talked about changing levels earlier with the men. Like he's a little bit more upright. He tends to play with the ball a little bit more before he goes, doesn't have that elite burst. So he tends to stay in this 10 to 18 foot range a lot and use a lot of these power moves. Now we see the result, a lot of mid range jumpers. Yeah. So like you asked, I I do think some of it is because he isn't able to beat his man as often as a man. But once again, I think it's, that's just such a high bar to meet to where there are so many other guards in this class who have that same kind of problem. You can't get to the rim uh, to that kind of level. But yeah, it, it definitely does play a, a part in him picking up his dribble early when he doesn't get into the paint. It's because he's not able to fully turn the corner on guys all the time. Um, but like we saw in the first clip that you showed, he still is able to get there occasionally, um, which is so nice to see. It's just not going to be as often. It's not like a walking paint touch. It's not going to be getting in there at will. Um, he has to to get there more with, with handles and craft and change of pace a little bit more and using the footwork to get in there instead of relying on the, oh, I'm going to burst you, I'm going to go burst by you, have that kind of first step to get by you. So it's just a different way he's going to have to, to do to, to get into the paint. Yep, and I'm bringing up the, the stats on Synergy right now. Uh, in the half court, Amen Thompson's percentage of total shots that were taken at the rim was 36%. So w- more than one of every three attempts that Amen takes comes at the basket. For Asar, it's just over 20%. It's more one out of five. So he tends to have, and the numbers back this up, a little bit more difficulty in getting to the basket. I also think those we got to take those numbers with a little grain of salt. Amen is the guy who played with the ball in his hands a little bit more. Yeah, so. I agree 100%. Um, but I want to say though, like 20 is it's what tw- a little over 21%. That's not that bad of a number either. No. It's, it's just, yeah, like it's just once we're going to compare it to someone who's elite there, it, it's going to look, look poor. But if we go to compare him to other guys, I'm sure it looks perfectly fine. Um, but looking at the film, it definitely is notable. So let's try to do that now. Let's try to compare to a couple different guys. I had mentioned the high pickup point for him. I'm a little bit uncertain as to what it means is it about him not being a really quick enough like jittery athlete to be able to get past that first line of defender into the lane or does he process the game and have such a quick passing feel that when he gets into those decisions that high pickup point is what allows him to create for others so coming off of a spread ball screen here he's willing to pick up his dribble before even entering the lane because he knows he has the moxie to manipulate the defense and get an open shot for his teammate. That's a really good pass to be able to make over the top of two showing defenders on the ball screen. Love this handle, by the way. This is the most underrated part of this possession. Watch what he does coming off this screen, sees the high hedge and show, goes immediately behind his back, and a really well-placed pass to the roller right there. So it's, it's hard to know, again, are some of the pickup points caused by lack of athleticism or is he just so much quicker of a decision maker with the ball in his hands that this is the advantageous position for him to be doing something for his team? 
It's going to be a bit of both. When it comes to these kind of questions, it's always probably a little bit of both. Uh, but one thing I want to talk on here with this handle is I think his reaction to reading the defense out of like pick and rolls or people trying to pressure him on defense, he is really, really quick at reacting yes. to those with those behind the back dribbles or some spin moves. Like it's, it's extremely impressive. So I definitely do think it is some proactiveness at times as well. Um, it's just going to be a combination of not being able to always create that space, but also feeling confident in himself at manipulating the defense or reading the tagger, reading whatever he has to do to make the right pass um, and still get a good look for the, for the offense. Yeah. So two really good passes to start off here, hitting the roller out of the spread pick and roll. I think what we'll see as a couple of these clips move on is that his processing speed translates to things outside of just ball screens and pick and rolls. And we see that here. Real, this is instant pickup on what's going on with the defense. They kind of hesitate on this almost like a zoom action. It feels like where they're going to end up going to this down screen into a dribble handoff. He gets two guys to him and he just floats that pass over the top so quickly. That, that's unbelievable recognition within a team construct or scheme. You know, we talk about, those quick decisions that he's making coming off of ball screens. It's not just high pick and rolls. It's empty sides. And then as he keeps moving here, the ability to adjust to what the defense gives him. So has that ball over his head, looking pump fake to the roller. He sees that tag about to happen and throws a pretty accurate cross court skip to a shooter. You talked about accuracy being really important earlier, Zach. I think Asar does a decent job with his overhead passes of being very accurate in that regard. I do worry, though, he's not going to be a major threat to be a pull-up scorer as soon as he gets the ball above his head in that type of position, that he is telegraphing to the defense, I am here only to pass this basketball. And it's going to be really hard for him kinetically to reload his energy and be able to take a jump shot there if that's what it comes down to. So I do think that if that initial read isn't quite there, the possession can stall out a little bit more because he picks up his dribbles so early. But let's just end on a couple more connective passes right here. This was my favorite Asar Thompson pass of the entire year in cycle. Pew! Right behind the defense. How he sees that is what's beyond me. But now here comes some of the bad stuff on the connective side, and it's related to the shooting, which I know is unfair we haven't talked to yet. He is stationed here in the left offensive quarter, number zero. I always say that when you are in a corner, you have to either shoot it, repenetrate it, or swing it in 0.5 seconds or less. The ball cannot stick to your hands because you are trapped in a corner there. It kills the flow and the momentum of the possession, and you are left without alternatives to be able to counter that. He needs to be able to actually throw this one more in this extra pass. Instead, he tries to get a little bit too fancy. Again, brings the ball over his head, which is his comfort point for trying to dissect a defense. And then this is kind of what the possession turns into. What we saw, again, that lack of separation that really turns into here, him picking up his dribble 15, 16 feet away from the basket. And the question here is when he gets the ball, if you want to go back to when he catches the ball in the corner there, is – it's interesting, like what's going on through his mind here? Because let's let's just say that guy falls for the pass fake, right? He's wide open in the corner for three. 
not that great of a shooter either. Yeah. So it's like you're making a pass fake to not really get that good of a corner three look anyways, where you can just pass this and keep the defense scrambling and find another advantage elsewhere. So I just think the pass is just the easiest decision here also, because even if he does bite on it, it's still not the best outcome because there's not really a lane to drive either. So it's him shooting a corner three after already losing the rhythm he had. Yep. And hey, let's let's keep that thought of the corner three going for a second here because we're going to transition into looking at some of the clips of his jump shot. But Amen Thompson, we had talked about the difference. He's so good of an athlete, he's going to have the ball in his hands a little bit more. Those guys tend to play in the middle third of the floor because you want to maximize their ability to drive in either direction, to not get pinned to a sideline and throw passes out to other people with a little bit more proximity. When you are more of an off-ball player, that's when the corner jump shot becomes of real importance to you. And if Asar is going to stay in the corner but be a little bit pensive about it, not be willing to take that shot, not really able to make it, then you're exactly right. What is that pass fake really about? What is he actually accomplishing here as a connective guy? So let's look at a couple of clips of the actual shooting form. I'm going to just turn this one over to you a little bit here, Zach. Like, where are you at with the form? What do you see mechanically? Once again, I think there's still some consistency, but I thought we saw some improvements with it, and it looked more consistent in the back half of the year, um, the last month or so. And I think – I'm not sure if you have the numbers. I think he shot a little bit over 40% in the overtime playoffs, which was very nice to see from three. For me, looking at it just from going from – February 3rd through the end of the season, he actually shot a uh, 34% from three at that point on 44 attempts. But the interesting part of that is he was one for seven in the corner, small sample size as well. But if you just look at the whole, um, how he played all this year, he really struggled in the corners this year. He was, I think six for 21. I see it as on synergy shot chart, um, which is not ideal which you just brought up if he's going to be playing in the corners more often. But even when you're off the ball a little bit more, you're going to be above the break on the wings. Uh, but his his best spot this year was top of the key, yep. 36%, 13 for 36. Um, that was his best spot. But I do think with his projected role at the next level, that is probably where he will get the least amount of his shots. And I've always found it interesting. It's not something that I've looked into or, or done as much research as I would like, but I, I find it very interesting looking into like, shot location tracking and yeah. prospects and, and trying to view how that will look in their roles at the next level is definitely something that maybe once we're done with this draft, I have a few projects in mind that like I, last year I did the shooting database this year, I'm going to do like a little touch database looking at layups, floaters and hooks and not looking at dunks um, because those aren't part of touch, even though they are part of yep. rim numbers. But I also want to look at shot locations. Um, it, it will be very interesting to see like, who gets their shots above the break at top of the key corners and how that translates to the next level based on their role. You are my favorite type of nerd, Zach. I absolutely adore <laughs> all of those things. And, and like, those are brilliant projects to be able to have coming up. So uh, I, I got to keep my eyes posted uh, to, to see some of that, but look with Asar, like he really hesitates in that off ball role. You would like to see a lot of these attempts that we're about to scroll through come just real cleanly. Hey, I'm open. I'm going to fire it and I'm going to shoot. But there's a, like a one second longer delay in realizing that, hey, I probably need to take this shot. They're playing way farther off of me. 
And it, it just seems, and it comes off a little bit like reluctance at times. It's and confidence when, also, right? It's, it's confidence. confidence. If you're not, if you're not confident in your shot, that's not going to be the first thing that comes to your mind when you catch the ball. And then you're like, Oh, wait, I actually do have the space. I'll go up. But then you sometimes lose a little bit of your rhythm or you overthink it. And then you're already in your own head and then you're not going to have a great shot also. So, yeah. And again, like he should be so used to having this much cushion that, Hey, I know I'm open. I have to have my mechanics ready on the catch with the intent to shoot. It feels like he has this intent as soon as he catches it to process and then to figure out, okay, am I open enough to shoot? Because let's say the jump shot develops a little bit more and he ends up being a guy that can shoot the basketball. You need to have those smooth in rhythm attempts in order to maximize those shots that you're getting. And and for him to catch and survey and hope that he's played off of in the way that he is in a lot of these clips, it just doesn't marry with the idea of actually turning into an effective shooter someday. And it's just so damaging how he was actually guarded, how teams really sagged off of him. But you mentioned the late season improvement. I don't know if there's anything really mechanically that changed too much, maybe slightly with his base, but it very much seems like he started shooting it a little bit earlier and in rhythm, like understanding on the catch. I'm going to go up with this one. I need the fluidity from catch to energy transfer to release. All parts of that seem to be a little bit more present in these late season shots, which leaves me, like you said, somewhat optimistic that the shot is going to come around. Yeah. And I think that's the, the key word is somewhat cautiously optimistic. It's not something that I am 100% buying whatsoever, but I do see it. I do think there have been improvements with him. Um, and that that's important to, to know. So cautiously optimistic is how I put it, but uh, yeah, like we mentioned before we went into it, it's, it's more important for him to figure out the shooting than a men. So hopefully he can figure that out because seeing what he can do on the defensive end is, is going to be really intriguing. And look, this isn't a podcast about overtime elite in general, but we know that shooting is so much about confidence. And I keep watching these games and, you know, we did a deep dive earlier in the winter and then going back and watching some stuff in preparation for this podcast. I, I really struggle with a, a level and brand of basketball that has two elite prospects like this and they continue to get this level of disrespect from the teams that they're playing in their own league of just continue to be sagged off and dared to shoot. Like it's, it's actively harmful in some ways to perpetuating the two guys that OTE probably needs to be lofting up for their own, their own good as, as much as possible, but neither here it's nor sort of there. Interesting. It's sort of interesting though, because we've seen like going to a Coro at Auburn uh, he obviously struggled shooting in college. He was not treated like th- to this extent. So I, I actually yep. wonder if like they got more rep this way than they would have in college. I think when you go back to Coro's college tape and their non-conference stuff, uh, he was getting hard closeouts still. Coro was able to attack closeouts and leverage his passing off of those closeouts and drives because teams were closing out on him. Now, once they got the conference play, I remember like, I think the Florida games will come to mind right away is they were starting to sag off of him and and ignore him a little bit more, but I don't think it was ever to this extent. I know we see Andre Jackson a little bit where he's actually to the extreme of completely ignored at times, but 
I'm actually like not a hundred percent sure they would have gotten this kind of defense in college and they might've even looked a little bit better on offense because of that, which is something that I actually never really thought about that much until yeah. right now, but I think it's yeah. actually pretty interesting. Yeah. It's, it, it's a challenge that I have in trying to figure out this, this OTE system in some regard is like, I don't know how this is something that happened where they literally just said, eh, and let the guy shoot. So let's talk about the defense here, Zach, because uh, I think you and I are both pretty big fans of this for Asar in an area where he tends to excel. He cross matches against point guards really well. You know, a man as an athlete, he likes to use his athletic tools and his length. I think Asar is much more sustainable actually guarding at the point of attack and being somebody who defends one. He extends his pressure the quick footwork, like he's just very hounding. It's the the overall energy that he provides at that position, which disrupts offense, which makes smaller handlers really uncomfortable and is in general what allows him to be an impactful on-ball defender. So we'll see in a lot of these clips, he's picking up far extended pressure, right? Almost in the full court, kind of three-quarter court, stays with his man in half and – he forces those types of errors just with his activity. One thing I want to touch on is I really like when people, yeah, it gets very tiring to pick people up full court, but it's, I think a very underrated skill or a part of defense, because if they take seven, eight, nine seconds, dribbling the ball up the court, they're getting into their possession with 10, 11 seconds left on the shot clock. And you're making it so much tougher on the offense to really get the best look that they want. So yeah, it is tiring putting that pressure up in the full court for the full game. But if you are someone who can do that, it's actually really valuable that I don't think it's talked about that often. Totally agree. And it's something that we don't see enough of at the NBA level. So we talked with the men about screen navigation in the half court, right? We probably got to have the same conversation here with Asar still somewhat upright in my mind. Like, he extends his pressure really well, but as soon as he's broken that pressure a little bit more, he tends to come up out of his stance. You see here a little bit more upright and it's just harder for him to peel around a lot of those screens as a result. So these are teachable things. This is footwork. This is just staying engaged at a certain level, but he is not as quick getting through a lot of these screens as you would like for somebody who looks like he is comfortable guarding at the point of attack. Like you don't have that full court pressure, that hounding presence on opposing guards without having this stuff with it. You need to be able to guard in ball screens at that position. Agreed. And I like how you mentioned that it is fixable. They aren't some stiff players. They have the flexibility to be able to get around screens and get low and, and dip their shoulders and have the right technique. It is just something they're going to have to work on. And whether they do improve it or not is a question that still remains to be seen. But once again, like we talked about, their technique flaws on the defensive end are probably more. It's more encouraging that those are the flaws than something else. So, yeah, once again, it's not no guarantee that they fix it, but I am uh, at least more encouraged by these flaws than other ones. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to end on that clip and showing he really is capable of getting through so much of this stuff. So Zach, those are all the clips that we're going to watch on a SAR. Let's put him into context a little bit more, right? What is his ideal role in your eyes offensively? 
So he's going to be um, an off-ball guy. Don't buy him as a primary guy. I actually do think um, if the shot continues to improve, he also can be some kind of secondary guy. I do like him um, running some side pick and rolls and that kind of stuff, and that can maybe help him get into the paint and, and use his passing that way as well. Um, one thing we didn't talk about with the two that I want to ask you is how do you feel about both of them as cutters, um, slashers and, and cutters off the ball? Oh, you're beating me to it here. Cause I was going to bring this up. Um, I think that a man doesn't really see or process when he should be cutting. And a large part of that is because he's used to being so ball dominant. He tends to ball beg a little bit more when he doesn't have it. He wants to head up to that middle third of the floor and call for it back. I think Asar is a really good cutter, an excellent cutter who knows how and when to go does so with burst and pace and that connective passing is going to allow him to be a guy who doesn't just cut every time and have to go up with a shot, but to cut back door or make a move through the lane and have some of those dump off passes, those connective tissue passes where I saw in the comments section earlier, there's a question about like short roll creativity and passing. I think Asar probably projects a little bit better at that because he doesn't need to be facing the defense and breaking it down before he makes his read. Right. And, and, and that brings us to the point where when he's an off-ball player, bring that cutting with yep. secondary, second side pick and rolls. Hopefully the shooting comes around and he does have to buy into that defense and be a defensive stopper on the perimeter. That's probably his ideal role. Even one of his high-end outcomes, I don't think I'd put that much stock in him being some primary guy. Um, wouldn't say it's impossible. I just think it's, it's pretty unlikely with him. Uh, do you differ there? Where do you stand? No, I, I struggle to see him scoring enough in the half court to command an on-ball role. I, I think the athletic tools are more evident in transition or when he gets ahead of steam to the basket, not separating with the ball in his hands. And I'm, again, the, the high pickup point, I, I did all of these clips, right? So for me, <laughs> like I was already able to show through and talk about a lot of these things, but like I don't think his offensive production translates as well to a – attacking from the bounce against a set defense type of thing. He needs more creativity. He needs a head of steam. He needs to be a connective guy. Right. No, I agree hundred percent. And what about the defense for you, Zach? Like, are you, are you thinking that he can guard multiple positions? Is he somebody who's predominantly against ones? Like, what do you think is the optimal role for him there? No, I, I think he, can, he will have some versatility in that and don't think he'll be guarding like those, I mean, he won't be guarding fours or fives. Big wings, I'm a little bit questionable on from the strength aspect there. But I do think he has the foot speed to stay with a lot of players. Um, and he he has athleticism and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think I think you had one through three on your clips, I think, if I remember correctly, yeah. on the video. I, I don't have any uh, disagreements there. Sure. Okay. So let's wrap up this conversation with just kind of – a couple overall questions that we can have here. I want to want to go back to the idea of transition play because while we showed some clips in a few categories, these are obviously cherry picked, right? They were meant to go through the conversation that you and I wanted to have to contextualize these two prospects, but they're so good at other things, right? We talked about Asar as a cutter, really fantastic cutter. Both of them are elite, elite athletes in transition. And I think in this conversation, we've got to have a little bit more finality to this idea. Is the transition stuff for them at OTE, is it more about the level of play 
or is it more about how damn impactful they are as players that forces their team to play in transition more? Once again, I'm, I'm going to take the bit of both approach here, but it is true because yeah. I would really like to look at the numbers. I should have done it before, but looking at the transition uh, points for teams where they're not playing, I would assume it's still up in overtime compared yeah. to like college and that kind of stuff. So it's definitely going to be the setting of overtime as a whole. But like you mentioned, those two are still extremely talented transition players. We didn't talk, talk about it much, but their passing and their outlet passing is so awesome their recognition off the rebound of hitting those hit aheads before they even like land on the ground is second to none it's, it's really really impressive so they are awesome transition players that do help the uh, play at a faster pace who does help their team want to get out and run um but yeah if you take a look at the games without them the transition will still be higher just because of uh how the setting is Okay. Second question. And I didn't put this on our planning document before, so I'm throwing you something real quickly here, (laughs) Zach. Do you think that they were put at a disadvantage by having to play together? Um, possibly, but I actually like the fact that they had to play together because, um, it, it made them learn how to play off of someone else who is that talented. And I think that is going to be very, very important at the next level. So yeah, maybe it wasn't like the most optimal for just getting to see everything um, that you want to see right now. But I think for their growth and learning to play off of someone else even more, I actually did like it. Short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. I love it. So before we get out of here, let's just kind of go through a couple categories. I'm going to name a category here and you're going to tell me which twin is better and I'll either agree or disagree. All right. Yeah. Let's start with athleticism. Who's the more athletic player? Um, Amen. Totally agree. All right. On ball defender. Lassar. Agree. Help defender. This one is a little closer for me, but I think I'll still go with Asar. Interesting. So I would have the on-ball defense a little bit closer. Uh, I think Asar is a much better help defender. So I, I think we're three for three, at least in agreement here. Scoring the basketball. Who's a better scorer? Amen. Totally agree. Overall playmaking feel and skill. Amen. All right, we're... What's that? Six for six now. And then the last one, the shooting upside. Who is the upside to be a better shooter? So it's a star, but I'm still, like we said, still not 100% confident here. Um, and it is more important for him. But what we have seen, I do buy his shot being better than a men long term. Whether it's good enough still remains to be seen. Totally agree. So we have three categories for a men. Athleticism, scoring, and overall playmaking. Three categories in favor of a star. On-ball defense, help defense, and shooting upside. If it's 3-3, three to three, why do we both have a man at a tier higher than a guy like Asar? I think I can answer this, and you've mentioned it a little bit earlier. It's how rare it is to be able to, to do the things that a man can do as a potential number one option. I tend to believe that what you draft for at the top of drafts are trying to find those types of guys. You get as many bites at the apple when you're rebuilding because you know that the first step to a rebuild is finding those elite talent players that you can build everything else around. And with his athleticism, with his playmaking feel, yes, there's stuff to clean up. He's a teenager still. He's 20 years old. But 
that's the, the trait that you want to have when you are looking for a player at the top of the draft. A men seems to have that a lot more than a SAR in my eyes. Yeah, I agree. Three to three, but I still prefer a men, like we said earlier. Um, and I think it's a pretty easy decision for me. Um, and it is interesting because, like we just talked about, he doesn't have as much shooting upside. Also, when the NBA is, it's so important to be able yeah. to shoot. But that just goes to talk about how elite of an athlete and how outlier of an athlete he is and how important that can be for an offense and just his ability to consistently collapse the defense, get them to sink in and create shots for himself or teammates is just such a valuable skill that you can't find that easily. No, you, you really can't find it that easily at all. Zach, this was awesome. A really fun conversation to be able to have here. Thank you for taking the time to, to really dive into the tape and, and have this chat with me before we let you get out of here, please let everybody know where they can find you and kind of what you have going on between now and the draft next week. Yeah. So on Twitter, Zach Milner, 13, um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I did my NBA shooting range database last year. I am almost done with that this year, just cleaning up some stuff. I will be posting that, um, probably Monday or Tuesday. So it will be out before the draft hundred percent. I'm pretty much done getting all the college players, um, numbers in. I just got to get some G league, um, international and overtime stuff and maybe a few auto eligible college guys in there as well but i'm i'm like 80 85 percent done with that so that will be out soon um for anyone who doesn't know what i pretty much did last year is i went through synergy um their their shot charts and you can go by um distances and i filtered out anything that was not nba range from three you can go to 24 feet and out so unfortunately there's three inches of room for air because the nba line is 23 nine above the break but um get all of that and you can get uh, what a college player shot from NBA range three. And I, I think that's pretty interesting when you're trying to talk about shooters who have to expand their range as well. We don't really talk about that that often as we probably should. The college line is not the same as the NBA line and, and sure having that whole off season of working on their game, uh, extending their NBA range is important, but yeah, I always like looking at that and you see guys like Corey Kisper, Cam Johnson, these guys were consistently shooting, deep threes in college and it has um, translated to the next level. So that's the main thing that I am working on right now. So keep an eye on for that. That will be out uh, early next week before the draft. I'll, I'll just tweet about it and the Excel or Google sheets link will be there. I put a findings um, article about it last year. I won't have a findings article out before the draft, but I'll work on that after and it'll be out after. Invaluable resource. Uh, loved looking at that last year. Excited to have this year's version of it out. Zach, you are a true pro, and uh, we love having you on here. In that regard, for everybody who's still listening, tomorrow, Friday morning, the Boxing One Draft Guide is dropping. So keep your eyes out for that over on our Substack or on our Twitter pages. But this has been a lot of fun being able to do the first live broadcast, and nobody better to do it with than Zach Milner. We're going to head out of here for the night, folks, but thank you so much for spending your time with us. See you.